0: Welcome to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes, an evolved perspective on life with dogs. Welcome to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. Great to be here today. As always, big thanks to St. John Creamery for providing raw goat milk to the greater Seattle area. St Johncreamery.com is their website. Wherever you live, definitely see if you can get your hands on some raw goat milk for your dog. It's a great way to add some good nutrition, probiotics and enzymes to their food, regardless of what they're already eating. So we're going to do a couple interviews from past shows back in the archives. We have been on air for almost 10 years now. And I've had so many great interviews over the years. And so I've picked out a couple of my favorites today to play for you. My first is with Ellen O'Neill Stevens, who is the founder of Courthouse Dogs, one of my favorite and I think most impressive organizations that I've talked with. Uh, therapy dogs in courthouses to help victims of uh, violent crime, sexual assault, etc., especially kids uh, testify or provide Information to Detectives, where they may just be so traumatized that they can't talk. Really amazing work. This is my second interview, actually, with Ellen, and so she'll be catching us up on what they're up to now. My first interview with her was way back, like episode number 97 or something like that. So here we are. So enjoy that. That's courthousedogs.org. You can find them online. And then after that, we'll be airing my interview from a few years ago also with Dr. Simone Gadbois. And he is a canine scientist who does research on dog's sense of smell, also known as olfaction, and had a really great conversation with him. It was really interesting, his work and what he does. So enjoy these two interviews today, and you can find all of our shows archived on our website, dogradioshow.com, and as always, a free podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. So enjoy Ellen O'Neill Stevens, founder of Courthouse Dogs.
1: In terms of how this is evolving, in the past, before we thought of the ideas of dogs helping witnesses, the courts were beginning beginning to realize that children who had to talk about being sexually assaulted Mm. in front of the defendant uh, often couldn't do it. And so they thought, well, maybe we need to make some accommodations for them. So they started to allow children to hold a doll or a um, a blanket or some sort of lovey object to make them feel more secure. Or sometimes they would allow a support person to either sit in view or sit next to that person when they testify. So they were beginning to realize, okay, sexually assaulted children talking about this will try to give them a leg up. So there are some statutes and case law that support that. And so that was the beginning of thinking. Well, some of these witnesses, children, need this benefit. Um, and so now there uh, is, um, since we last ch- talked, there's case law that allows now allows these dogs uh, to assist uh, children. And and there was one particular case where the man um, had uh, an adult man had developmental disability and had a hard time talking mm-hmm. uh, about what had happened to him. And now there are um, statutes that allow these dogs to assist children. Where we want to go in the future is to uh, make the dog available to everyone that would have difficulty testifying. So the, the 19-year-old who saw his mother murdered, mm. he, you know, if it would be hard for him to do that, he should have a dog, mm-hmm. you know. And so we, we, want to, we want to do that. That's where we hope to see this go.
0: And I think I remember in our first conversation that it it was also not just when somebody was testifying, but even in um, I think you called it a forensic interview Mm -hmm. where like kids, um, you know, not just in in the face of whoever was the directly the scary person, but that they wouldn't want to tell a strange detective what happened to them or what they saw either. But they might. Tell the dog, or point to point to the dog's body, or where the dogs really helped um, the the uh, efforts to bring justice because they needed the the testimony
1: absolutely, so another thing that i've learned over the years uh, from a child psychologist, Dr. David Crenshaw, who's on our advisory board. Mm-hmm. Um, And he's a child, he worked with traumatized children in a therapeutic setting. He's told us that it takes him months and months and months of working very closely with a child in a supportive environment for them to get to talk about traumatic events. They have to establish trust. You know, fast forward or over to the legal system where a child that has been sexually assaulted um, is, you know, shortly after disclosure brought to a a, an office told that you're going to have to talk to someone who's a right. complete stranger about what, you know, uncle John did to you. Yeah. And so within a, arriving at the, at the office within, I would say 20 minutes, all of a sudden you're in a room by yourself talking to complete stranger who is digging all of these details out of you. Right. And it's like, we, you know, we want this evidence right now, give it to us. So that's a problem. Uh, but that's an investigation as well. You know, the police sure. need to find out what happened. So having the dog there during that process is huge um, in terms of, again, making the child feel more secure. And um, often these children will just turn to the dog and tell the dog what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it, you know, the dog is it's, it's used so much in terms of them being nonjudgmental, but they don't care. They're not reacting Facially, to what is being said. Yeah. Um, and so it it I think you probably get the biggest bang for your buck with these dogs is having the them help children during the investigative phase. Yeah. Because if they're able to tell what happened, there might be a guilty plea instead of a trial, and then you have saved the mm-hmm. family and the child the trauma of going through a trial, and you've also saved the taxpayers thousands of dollars by by not having to pay for a trial. Oh wow. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah, there's definitely just an association of safety, or mm-hmm. can't oftentimes anyway that we have with dogs. It's quite quite fundamental and profound. Mm-hmm. So, Ellen, um, you said that there was sort of an experience in Idaho that you wanted to share with the audience.
1: Yes, I I did, um, and it relates to. Um the training that the dogs should have in order to be successful at this work. And just briefly, we believe that um, only dogs that are graduates from assistance dog organizations that are members of Assistance Dogs International should be doing this work. And those dogs, those types of dogs, are called facility dogs. And that's an awkward name, but they were given that name because they're placed with professionals to assist many people in a work environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and initially it was in hospitals to assist physical therapists uh, with physical therapy and, and patients. And then schools, a special education teacher would have a facility dog to assist the mm-hmm. children in, in uh, class. Projects and programs, and then it just became uh, the courthouse was the next facility where these dogs are working. These dogs have the same training as a service dog, so they can open doors and turn on lights and that sort of thing. But they are specially selected for this work because of their very very calm demeanor. Mm-hmm. They're very self confident they uh can work in a high stress environment with a plum and uh and that is the key to their success because they do not distract from the legal proceedings judges are very concerned that um this is just going to be, you know, out of control, a kind of a circus. I can't yeah. have a dog in the courthouse for that reason. Right. Or the courtroom.
0: Right. Barking anytime somebody gets up or, you know, right. even exactly. shifting too much. And the other thing, too, that I think is so important because I've done a lot of shows over the years about, you know, topics related to service dogs and therapy dogs and, um, you know, animal assist- assisted crisis response and, you know, all sorts of stuff. And how, you know the training is is an important part and then you talked a bit about that also these dogs have a certain kind of temperament mm-hmm. that enables them because of who they are naturally mm-hmm. to be to handle these kind of high stress environments because you know taking care of the the environment in the courtroom but also taking care of the dogs emotional well-being and making sure that this is a dog who can handle being in this kind of place as well you know that kind of has the temperament for it
1: exactly so to you know to place a pet therapy dog in an environment where there's yelling and Mm -hmm. and police officers walking around in handcuffs or not handcuffs carrying handcuffs that sort of thing you know that they they can become very anxious quite quickly and they're and their owners are supposed to immediately remove them from that environment when they're anxious and it's not it's not thoughtful uh or kind to put a dog in that situation at all when they're when they don't have the temperament. I have a Corgi, she would be lousy at this right so, you know, I know. She, she would go after people <laughs> <You're> so, right <laughs> and make sure they all went in the right direction, so would our cattle but, dogs <laughs> right exactly yeah. but uh, I digress getting back to Idaho yeah. So we were headed out to uh, Bonner County, Sandpoint, Idaho, and we had got the word that a judge there, when he heard about their newly placed dog from uh, Canine Companions for Independence, um, would soon be uh, asked to participate or be present during legal proceedings. He said, I'm not turning this into a petting zoo, and this, you know, this is not going to be some dog and pony show. I No way am I having a dog in the courtroom. And so that created quite the stir amongst the other judges. So what Celeste and I do is we go to jurisdictions and and teach the judges and lawyers and court staff about these dogs and how this is supposed to work. And so I knew that was coming, and we like to train in courtrooms because it's just easier to convey what this is going to look like. And before the judges, there were three judges there, before... They arrived. I put our dog Molly in the witness box and uh, put her in it. I just said, "Down, stay," and she promptly crawled up inside the witness box and uh, went to sleep. So the judges filed in and they were sitting in the jury box. It was just happenstance, and they were just a you know few feet away. And I proceeded with the training, and then of course we got to the point where the judges said, "Well, look, I just don't see how this can work. This is going to be very distracting for the jury. How's any How's anybody going to focus in on what's going on?" And you know, we think we're just going to rely upon the usual way to calm people, with you know, down by kids holding teddy bears and that sort of thing. And I said, "Well, I beg to I beg to differ." Um, and then with that, um, I went over to the witness box and woke up Molly and said, there's been a dog here this entire time and you didn't even know it. And they were absolutely shocked. And I said, listen, having a dog like this is well, far less prejudicial to the defendant in terms of, you know, because the defense is concerned that people are the jurors going to like this dog and like the prosecution witness more because they have a dog. And I'm saying that, a child clutching a teddy bear is going to be much more sympathetic than a dog lying in, almost invisible um, in front of the jury, um, mm. to the jury. It, it's it's a much better way to provide this support without there being any uh, prejudice towards the defendant. Mm. So that was quite convincing, and they said, well, you know, kind of like, can you do this again in front of some of the other judges? We won't tell them what this looks like. So yeah. that was quite successful, and it really it takes seeing is believing yeah. that these judges, you know, that they, they then understand, no, I can conduct a trial, and, and the dog is not going to be a distraction.
0: Well, and I imagine that some of these judges um... – And just people in general, you know, their only experience with dogs, whether it be family dogs or they've not had much experience with dogs or they've just known, you know, always had dogs that barked a lot or dogs that were kind of out of control. And and they've never experienced a dog that was as calm as these dogs can be.
1: That's true. And until my son, Sean, for those who didn't hear the first episode Mm -hmm. a few years ago, has cerebral Paul, he's 33 now, and I had Sean when I was in law school, and, and he's just a fantastic young man. And he got a service dog um, in 2003, and until then, I didn't have a clue what service dogs look like or how they behaved. Until I, until he got that, and I went down and was trained on how to handle him on behalf of Sean. I had no idea, so I can appreciate that people don't know what this looks like, and that's why on our website we have a short film uh, where a dog trainer from Assistance Dogs of the West is talking about the type of dog that does this work, mm-hmm. and there is a dog right beside her while she's providing this information, so that you can actually see mm-hmm. what this looks like um, mm-hmm. and and get a much better idea.
0: So I've heard people share when as they have had therapy dogs, um, you know, visiting a children's hospital, for example, or something like that. Um, not a facility dog, but, so, you know, just sort of a team, a person and their, and their therapy dog. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, were standing in the elevator traveling from one floor to another and, and they're there to visit the patients. Um, uh, mm-hmm. but then, you know, a doctor walks in who just had a really hard, Surgery or something like that, and kneels down and gives the dog a big hug and just lets out the sigh. And I imagine that in this environment, these dogs really support everybody, not, you know, the, the, the people who they're specifically intended to support, um, oftentimes victims of crimes, but also everybody around who's, who's in these really high stress environments.
1: Um, Absolutely. Another thing that's changed over the years, you know, I started as a prosecutor in 1985. Um, It was expected that prosecutors um, should not be affected by stress at all. You're supposed to put your armor on, and it's not supposed to impact you at all. Mm -hmm. And uh, that wasn't the case for me, I can tell you, and and it was a big secret. Everybody else was stressed out by the job. And fortunately, now they're calling this vicarious trauma, because Mm. when you see so much pain and suffering going on mm-hmm. around you that impacts you. And then you're also, I tell you, going into travel is like going into battle. yeah, you, you've got that adrenaline rush going, you're ready to fight. And that is extremely draining as well. So yes, I think that um, the dog does have a huge impact. And I again, it can just be seeing that dog walk down the hallway, you know mm-hmm. where I've walked Molly down a courthouse hallway. And somebody will come up to me and, and, and will say, "Just seeing her just made my day."
0: Mm.
1: And, I mean, it takes that little. Um, and and defense attorneys I used to fight with, I had a whole different perspective of them when they get in the elevator with me and, and see uh, Molly and then start talking baby talk to her. Would you? Would you? <laughs> like, oh, yeah. you're a nice person after all. Of course, you know. Yeah. Yeah. They just kind of bring people. Bring people together and and make a much more positive environment.
0: Yeah, well, I know I always feel that anywhere is better with a dog. I mean, pretty much, you know, mm-hmm. if we walk into a a hotel or something while we're traveling and there and they have like a a mascot in the mm-hmm. lobby, we're always like, oh, you know, oh, and like mm-hmm. run over, and of course, we're missing our own dogs, and um, mm-hmm. so, so um, now you have a conference coming up, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. and is that something that is um who is the conference for is this um something for, sort of within the within the a profession or
1: anybody well, it or is, it is within the profession it's for uh, uh, judges lawyers victim advocates uh, law enforcement um it's also for um the assistance dog organizations that make this placement because they need to learn about the legal system so they know what kind of dog should do this work.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so it, it's it's for that population. The other thing is, is that what we're talking about, we're talking about some sensitive issues there
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, in, you know, in that setting as well. And so we don't want children under the age of uh, 17 present there mm-hmm. because listening to these very harsh things that happen to kids is, is kind of difficult yeah. to, talk, uh, to listen to.
0: Yeah. And that's coming up soon. And you said that um, courthouse dogs is exploding in Canada.
1: Yes, it is. It's been uh, they're fast on our tracks, and uh, this is within just a few years as well. But uh, Alberta is where the most of the action is. And initially, when we went up there I, again, it was like, oh, we're very formal here in Canada. It's not like the Wild West, U.S. Down <laughs> you know, uh, down below us here. Mm-hmm. Um, and but now these dogs are going into court in in canada so that they started in alberta um, and then recently in british columbia and now they're in the same situation we are in terms of trying to establish standards for this mm. and and um documents so uh it, it they're in the they're in going through the same process that mm. we went through and uh, we're actually having a meeting talking about how they can all get together and, and provide some standards for the rest of their country
0: so this is not a um a wing of of courthouse dogs this is like a separate organization organization in canada that's doing similar work or is this part no, it's, of it's part of courthouse to, dogs?
1: it's analogous to what we're doing we have they're called crown council up there and uh and victim advocates and assistance dog organizations so Okay. Uh, they are pulling to you know somebody has the idea and says let's do this so it's it's just very organic somebody wants to do it they usually call us what do you think we give them some advice and that is how it's it's growing um, there so it's no one's in charge yet um, and and I think they're just kind of we're all working together and that's what we want to do internationally because uh, we have people from Barcelona coming to our conference as well to see how this works because they want to bring this practice to spain
0: yeah well and you said that the fbi is getting on board with the program and will be receiving a courthouse facility dog next month
1: that is absolutely true assistance dogs of the west um, located in santa fe is placing a dog with the fbi victim services and again, in terms of this no longer being just a goofy idea, right. having the you know federal law enforcement now doing this, and mm. the federal courts looking at this only makes what we're doing far more credible. But this dog is going to be working nationally. So if there is some uh, you know crisis situation, it can be you know uh, environmental crisis, an earthquake or, or you know that sort of thing. Or, you know, like Mudslide and Oso, some of our local dogs went to help with that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Or it can be crime-related as well. This dog is going to get on a plane and and go and provide this service. Yeah.
0: Um, What are some of the things that, uh, one of the things I remember you said, and I assume it's still the case, because a lot of times people will ask, well, where do these dogs live? Mm -hmm. So do they go home with somebody at night?
1: Right. And that's another unfortunate thing about the term facility dog is a lot of people think, oh, does it live in the courthouse and, you know, guard the place? No, um, these dogs are placed with a primary handler, and that usually is a victim advocate or a forensic interviewer or a detective. Now they're working in family court, so this could be a CASA volunteer, a court-appointed special advocate, uh, is working with these dogs in civil proceedings as well. So they're placed with a professional working in the legal environment, and then they go to work every day with their handler. And at the end of the day, they go home and they they are babied and loved and have fabulous dog lives too. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and the handlers, you know, they've got an incredible companion, uh, both at work and at home.
0: How many dogs are, you know, in circulation right now?
1: Uh, our last count is um, there are now 86 dogs, and wow. probably when I talked to you in 2011, there might have been like 30 or something like that. But there's now 86 mm-hmm. dogs working in 28 states. And, of course, our mission is lots of dogs in every state. I mean, that's where, that's where we want to get to. Yeah. Uh, ideally, every courthouse or child advocacy center would, would have a dog yeah. uh, in the future.
0: And have you gotten to the point where
1: you've retired dogs? Yes. Um, Stilson, up in Snohomish County, uh-huh. he retired. Uh-huh. Um, and so he was one of the first dogs placed in that environment. Now, Ellie, who was placed at the King County Prosecutor's Office in 2004, yeah. is still working. Wow. And she has helped thousands of people, mm. mostly children, over the course of her career. So, this dog was placed free of charge by canine companions million dollar liability insurance free of charge, the two weeks of training for for the handler free of charge and she yeah. has done incredible work at little or no cost to the county um and it's you know it's it's just amazing,
0: yeah, so is it just sort of um people um are just sort of tune, in tune with the dog and make the call when they think that the dog is ready to retire?
1: Yes, I think so. So they usually retire between 8 and 10 years of age. Mm-hmm. Our dog, Molly, is now 8, and she's not slowing down. Uh, but some <laughs> of the dogs do start to slow down, yeah. and it can it's just dependent upon, just like humans, some are still running, you sure. know. Uh, you know, working full time in their mid to late 70s, and yeah. some of us are kicked back and like, oh, I'm done. Yeah. So it, it kind of works that way with, mm-hmm. with the dog. Cool. Well,
0: is there anything else that you wanted to say before we say goodbye today about anything?
1: Well, I want to thank you for, so much for this opportunity, and, um, I just hope the listeners out there, uh, think about this and, um, And support this idea because, as I said before, this is getting to be kind of a grassroots movement, and Mm -hmm. we need support from the public um, as well. How can people Um, support you? Well, we're a nonprofit organization, so Mm -hmm. certainly you could support us um, by making donations. Mm -hmm. But also, I have to tell you, there have been a few times where a crime victim has gone to a prosecutor and said, I've heard about these dogs, Kenya." can you get me one? And we've gotten a call and and somebody says, is there a dog nearby or how can I get one of these dogs? Mm. And getting that input from the public to prosecutors and judges would be very, very helpful as well. Mm -hmm. So
0: supporting through donations and just education and awareness and uh, what is the best contact for for people to use if they want to get in touch and and offer themselves? (laughs)
1: I would say um, the uh, go to our website. Mm-hmm. We have tons of information there. You can learn quite a bit about how this works, and we also have a manual that we've just published about these dogs working at child advocacy centers and in legal proceedings. Mm-hmm. So everything is on our website. Our contact information is there as well as our phone numbers.
0: Great, right. and that website again is courthousedogs.org. Correct. Awesome. Well. Thank you, and your team, and the dogs, and Sean, and Jeter, and everybody who has made this movement happen. It's really, clearly, uh, such a powerful force of good in this world, in a, in an environment that really needs that. So well,
1: I thank you so much for that summation. That was beautiful, Julie. <laughs>
0: oh, well, my pleasure. Thank you so much for your time today. That's Ellen O'Neill-Stevens with Courthouse Dogs. You can find them online at courthousedogs.org. Really, really amazing work. And next, I'm going to air my interview from 2014 with Dr. Simon Gadbois, and he studies uh, olfaction or scent detection, scent work in dogs, and it was a really, really awesome conversation. So we're just going to jump right into that. Enjoy. So you're doing this research on wildlife and conservation dogs and really working on training methods and, um, you know, evaluating the olfactory performance that, you know, the dogs are basically the... Are you researching the training process involved in generating these scent detection dogs? Or are you researching... It sounds like you're also researching the the olfaction part, so the, the sense of smell, as well as the training process. Is that right?
2: Yeah, that's right. Uh, we we do both the basic or fundamental research and the applied research, basically. Okay. Um, most of our funding comes from applied um, or, or from uh, the, the desire to see dogs uh, working in those new uh, fields of uh, application of sun detection. Yeah. Um, but that allows me to get into some of the theoretical stuff, so it 's both at the sensory level trying to understand what we call psychophysics actually or olfactory psychophysics, mm. uh, how they process scent in general, but also uh, strategies around learning yeah. um, in, including how to make them learn uh, faster and better and um, because the problem unfortunately with the applied world of, of sniffer dogs is that there is a huge cost of You know time and money yeah Um, and unfortunately I think it's responsible for a lot of the lack of popularity of that system like for instance for medical diagnosis Um, we've known now for at least 10 years that dogs do uh, significantly better to detect uh, some types of cancer Mm -hmm. and then you wonder well why is it that we don't have yet um, an infrastructure clinics, whatever, to, to get this going, to get those dogs to uh, diagnose uh, prostate cancer, for instance. Yeah. And I think the, the, the answer is that, well, it's because implementation is a real issue, uh, not to mention, you know, convincing the FDA, Health Canada, et cetera, these organizations that it's actually valid. Mm-hmm. That's one problem. Mm-hmm. But the other one is the cost. Um, and we're working on this uh, at Dalhousie as well, trying to figure out ways to make this a little bit more practical, less costly, uh, because I think that's the main, uh, uh, the main obstacle right now. Not to mention, obviously, the fact that uh, convincing people from the medical establishment and engineers that biological systems are potentially better than technology. <laughs> right. That's a hard sell. It's yeah. really, really hard to get this. Uh, you know, convince people of that. Yeah. So to get back to what you were saying, I mean, dogs are clearly li- living in a completely different world than ours. We, we cannot even start to imagine what it is to live in that uh, world of borders, mm-hmm. um, you know. And it's probably as amazing as it is for us uh, to live in a world, a very visual world, you know, of, uh, of colors, etc. Mm-hmm. I mean, except that they they process it at a uh, you know more molecular level, if you want.
0: Mm-hmm. So, how would you describe if someone was like, "Can you"? Describe what your understanding of of how dogs experience a sense of smell, and maybe that's by describing what you know about how it works. You know, in a physiological level, or um, you know, I know that the neurophysiology, or you know, in that respect, or from a, just a perspective or understanding. But what would you say about that? Because this is a this is an area of expertise for you.
2: Yeah. Well, first of all, I'll say that, you know, uh, even with humans, olfaction is something that we really do not understand well, Mm. Um, because we're dealing with a stimulus, the other end of the odor that we can't see. So for us humans, it's almost impossible to even understand how the brain deals with Mm. it. And uh, and that's a real challenge, because, for instance, in my lab, we always uh, wonder how much contamination we have. We know it's there. We don't see it. We don't smell it. Sure. But they do. Yeah. Um, and that's that's uh, that's a real uh, that's a real concern. Uh, m- most of the researchers I know that work in this area tend to focus a lot of on the quantitative stuff, what I call also the hardware. You know, how many genes are involved, how many olfactory receptors, how big the nose is. Honestly, I don't uh, connect with that perception on, uh, of olfaction, and based on the neuroscience of it, I'm much more interested uh, um, in what I call the uh, Uh, software part of it. And what I mean by this is uh, partially how the brain works in in terms of the neurochemicals. And I know now that's starting to sound complicated, but it's really not that complicated. Um, And I think we've had success, great success, with Border Collies, for instance. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that is counterintuitive for a lot of people that seem to think, for instance, that bloodhounds should be the ultimate Mm -hmm. scent dog actually Argue that maybe not. Um, I mean, part of it is the work ethics of mm-hmm. Boricolis that we really like. Um, they're intense dogs, as you know, often a bit neurotic as well. Uh, but that's good, you know, if you can actually focus that intensity yeah. on work, it's great. The mm-hmm. software part of our faction here comes into play when I actually think that what's really uh, interesting about Boracolis. Shepherds and and, um, and Parsons, Terriers and uh, Jack Russells, etc. cetera, that, that I call the dopamine breed. Mm-hmm. These are dogs that are known to have higher levels of dopamine um, than other breeds. And I think that's the software part in the sense that when that neurochemical is uh, um, involved in, that, in a breed or individual, uh, highly involved, Uh, work, and one of the reasons is because there's a lot of uh, dopaminergic, as we call it, involvement in the olfactory bulb. That's an essential part of the olfactory system hmm. uh, of of you and I, and and dogs and most mammals, actually. And um, so, in other words, it's not just the hardware, you know, the big nose of the bloodhound, but it's also how it works at the purely at the chemical level. And some of the neurotransmitters or those chemicals in the brain that are involved. I think that's that's the key. Mm. Um, so um, uh, you know, border collies are are not necessarily the the dogs that you would picture as the your typical scent dog. But I think it may explain the success of the Malinois, for
0: instance, mm. those uh, yeah.
2: amazing Belgian sheepdogs that are actually very uh, um, very intense as well. Yeah um you know not unlike border collies in some way yeah um and they're very good at tracking and, and trailing and, mm. and we think that's uh that's uh, part of the same correlation yeah um so you know i'm not, i'm not the type to emphasize you know this many receptors and this many cells are involved in, and and i think that this is interesting data but um but it doesn't explain everything about why a dog is good at olfaction and the olfactory work itself, because it's not just processing smell in a vial. It's also the whole behavior of tracking that is important.
0: Yeah. One of the questions that I had when I was reading about your work with invasive insect detection is I'm curious because you're specifically talking about the the brown spruce longhorn beetle. Um, both in lab and field conditions, and showing the ability of the dogs to discriminate that particular species from other domestic and local species. And I'm wondering, in these research projects, especially if it's a new field, I mean, like you've done work with hypoglycemia, and you know, I don't know if that seems to me and correct me if I'm wrong is is kind of along the lines of like diabetic alert dogs where they're detecting (laughs) low blood sugar and you know but this is like new I don't you know I has anybody ever done research around you know scent detection with brown spruce longhorn beetles compared to other beetle species how do you identify what it is that differentiates them from a scent perspective to train the dogs in the first place
2: well, I mean, again, this is a great area where we work uh, on a complete unknown. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in fact, with the hypoglycemia project um, um, that my PhD student, Catherine Reeve, is working on, uh, we're w- working with chemists uh, to try to eventually overly um, isolate what it is that they are really um, identifying, uh, allowing them to discriminate low and high blood pressures. Uh, sorry, not blood pressure, but uh, blood sugar level. Mm-hmm. And obviously, it's the same thing with the the, the bugs. So with the longhorn beetle, we're actually working with the larvae. We're interested in the dogs detecting the larvae in the tree Mm. uh, and and to make things more complicated here in Canada during the winter. Um, And uh, we actually do not know, starting uh, the training, if they can really differentiate between uh, the local and the invasive species. So what we do, basically, is we reinforce the detection of the uh, invasive
0: species right. and
2: not reinforce the uh, detection of the, the local domestic species. Right. And we just hope that after a while they'll get it. <laughs> That's essentially it.
0: <laughs> and if they uh, do, then it, really, then it really reinforces that question of like, well, what are they smelling? I mean, is it genetic?
2: That's right. So, uh, so we, we've had actually this, uh, this spring the confirmation that they can differentiate uh, in the lab. Mm.
0: Um,
2: they, they're doing quite well at detecting and <laughs> uh, discriminating. Yeah, uh, We think it's probably a pheromone, um, although uh, there's some questions there. If you actually look at the biology of those insects, how much of a distinct smell would they have at the larval stage? Um, it could be extremely subtle. And I'm not going to pretend that it's easy for the dogs, by the way. Mm. Um, They can do it, um, but some dogs are pretty close to chance. Mm. So uh, we know it's a challenge, and we're actually working on techniques right now to try to turn this around, uh, get them a little bit more accurate, uh, especially in the field. The field has been less than conclusive so far, um, but uh, in the lab they seem to be uh, having a better handle on it. So Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Um, You know, and, and it's... Although we we see applications of send dogs on all kinds of things now, it's not to say that it's always easy and it always works. Yeah. Um, You know, every time we get into a new project, we never know what's going to happen. A number of years ago when we started looking for ribbon snakes, which are endangered here in Nova Scotia, we had tons of people telling us this would never work. Mm -hmm. Um, They they don't have a distinctive smell enough. They'll uh, find garter snakes instead. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're working in a marshy area. It's known to be very difficult for dogs to work in those conditions. Well, to this day, this is by far our most uh, successful program. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we started working on wood turtles. Mm-hmm. I was absolutely convinced that this would be dead easy for the dogs to do. Mm-hmm. Such a slow animal, uh, uh, you know, a lot of a big fingerprint on the ground, if you want, mm-hmm. and it will be easy to track. Well, actually, <laughs> it's. It's very inconclusive so far if they actually make a difference uh, compared to just human. Because in this kind of conservation work, what we do is we compare human-only teams and uh, human-dog teams. And what we want to see is that teams with dogs are doing better at finding more of those endangered species. Right. But interestingly, with the wood turtles, it's not clear. I mean, it's marginally better, but not very convincing so far.
0: So are no, they very
2: mysterious? We are, don't really know why
0: Are they detecting other turtles as well? Is that what the problem is, or are they or are, are humans just as good as finding the turtles
2: it's It's mostly that we can see that humans are almost as good, but there's a seasonal pattern which we can't uh, really explain. Mm. The dogs are still better in the spring, mm-hmm. and we think this may have to do with hormones in in the turtles mm. uh, so basically hormones mm-hmm. uh, very specific smells that are produced by those uh, mm-hmm. animals during the breeding season and the
0: sure.
2: um, egg-laying season. And then later, those odors disappear, so the dogs uh, seem to be unable to identify the, the, or as easily as humans, anyway, visually, uh, the turtles. Yeah. Um, and we had a similar experience with eggs. We were hoping they could find the nest uh, where those turtles laid their eggs. And what's fascinating is they really are not good at it. Mm. Um, uh, which you know, if you think about it, is is probably good for the turtles. Yeah. If you take a turtle egg and smell it, even All if it right. was actually isolated from uh, from any kind of uh, organic substrate, you know, like in milk carton or whatever, right. you would actually notice that by itself, it has a very earthy smell. So in this case, it's it's the amazing biology of turtles that you know they, they use kind of a, a olfactory camouflage, if you want. Wow, so their eggs their eggs actually smell like so no wonder that raccoons and sure. and skunks and foxes and dogs can find the hmm. the, uh, the nest.
0: Takes camouflage to a whole nother level of conversation.
2: But no, it does. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly.
0: Have you? Um, is there enough data to have this opinion? I'm I'm not sure. But do you have you found that like so dogs in general? So let's say you take um, you know ten dogs who are great great scent detection dogs. Do you think that certain individuals, based off of just the fact that they're an individual or breed or who knows what, but is would would this individual maybe be better at detecting this scent versus that scent, given that they don't seem to be any harder or easier than each other, like just because of individual sensitivity, specifically pertaining to their sense of smell, like... Oh my! I can. I'm really good at smelling, um, you know, nuts and peanuts and stuff like that. But yeah. and then this other dog isn't quite so sensitive to that, but might be great at bed bugs or something like that. I don't know.
2: Yeah, I I don't know that I can actually say anything about it. I don't think I have enough data mm-hmm. to uh, to comment on this. But it, it's a good question. Um, in fact, it's it's often. Uh, A question that people will ask in the context of, um, do you train your dogs uh, to smell many different odours or or stimuli? Um, And the answer is, it depends on the dog, so maybe that's another way of approaching your question. Mm -hmm. Uh, We seem to be able to teach some dogs to go after about anything. We just have to tell them what we're looking for and they'll do it. Mm -hmm. Other dogs seem to be real specialists. Mm -hmm. Uh, Okay, I'm good at this and don't bother me with anything else, basically. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's it's unclear to me why this happened. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, But, yeah, no, I I can't really say. I think uh, we've had some surprises in the past. I mean, some biological odors, like when I was mentioning the ribbon snakes, for instance, Mm -hmm. um, that seem to be easy for most of our dogs uh, to detect. Uh, We've had other dogs that are absolutely unable to uh, figure it out. So, it, it, especially in terms of discrimination, with, for instance, uh, garter snakes. Mm-hmm. Although, to be honest with you, I can't. I can't tell the difference between the two when I sniff the samples from those uh, those snakes. But um, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's that's a difficult question to answer. Um, I, I don't really have an answer for that.
0: Yeah, and then also it kind of brings up: well, is it their actual sense of smell, or is it how they experience the training process, or or is it something in their brain or you know like oh i'm really good i i can't multitask but i can focus on one thing but i can't really switch tracks like that as opposed to another individual that might be better at kind of multitasking and having that's right and
2: as you know sparks will have a as a full day um in rhode island on personality and uh yeah that's clearly a big factor as well there's no doubt about it um Yeah. yeah um i think um some dogs also. It's not just the olfactory work. I think it's it's the whole attitude toward um, work in general. Yeah. Um, you know, and and although we have great success with uh, border collies and probably the highest retention of all breeds mm-hmm. uh, in in our team, um, at the same time uh, they are really sometimes really neurotic dogs, I and mean, mm-hmm. some of them are just you know, uh, you know, when we first get them in screening, we go like, oh my, what are we? Going to do with this dog. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's that same neuroticism that, you know, if you really can turn this around, like, look, you have a job now. This is what you do. This is your thing. Yeah, Yay, you're a hero. That's what you do. Yes, you're right. good at it. Fantastic. Then we got dogs that are absolutely fantastic, and they seem to almost find a, a I mean, I know this is a bit dramatic the way I'm going to say it, but almost a, a reason to live, you know.
0: Well, it's what they're made to do. They're like, thank God I finally have something to do. I've been unemployed for five years or whatever, you know. That's right. Yeah, yeah
2: exactly. Yeah. And especially since, you know, most of the owners that actually volunteered their dogs to our lab, um, you know, uh, you know, have to work during the day. And yeah. they'll say, my, my, my dog is driving me insane and is <laughs> driving himself insane in the process. Yeah. Says, please, please take him, you know. Give him a job. Give him something to do. Um, so, yeah, sometimes we have great, great surprises there. And uh, But personality, there's no doubt, is important here. Um, yeah. in, in fact, I can tell you that I, I, um, if, if you look at the dogs that we don't keep uh, based on a, our um, attrition data, so dogs leaving the program, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would say that most of the time it's because of, uh, I'll use the word personality here, but temperament. Uh, attitude towards work, mm-hmm. more so than their actual ability to sniff. Yeah. Um, so that that's an interesting piece of information in itself, yeah. I think. I think that says a lot about about dogs and, uh, you know, the challenges, especially of working with dogs. They're very much like us. Yes. Uh, they have personalities, what can I say? <laughs> I know,
0: yeah. And this is something I talk um, my area of expertise here is dog training and behavior. And I do private lessons with people in the Seattle area and I meet with all different types of dogs, you know, border collies to whippets, to chihuahuas, to bulldogs, you know, all over the place, mixed breeds. And one of the things about, you know, every person has, you know, different levels of expectation, but depending on my sense for the dog is, you know, and what you said, what is their attitude towards work? Because some dogs are like, (gasps) Oh, oh, we're going to do obedience training? Yes, awesome. Like my cattle dogs just want to be told what to do. What are we doing? What are we doing? And other dogs are like, what is the point of this? Like can't, you know, I'd rather be, you know, I'm interested in maybe hunting things or, you know, doing other types of work, but they're just really not interested in it. And that is a hard thing to sort of change in a dog. I think you can improve on it, but it's something important for people to be, Uh, sensitive to and to have a reasonable expectation of the individual because you wouldn't want, that's what can really cause stress is if you take a dog that's just for whatever reason not interested or comfortable and you kind of force them to do a type of work that they're really not motivated to do.
2: Absolutely and and, you know it's probably one of the reasons why one of our most important criterion um, is the play drive as we, well I mean Mm -hmm. some people call it that but I mean it's just the if they see work as play then they have a good chance to succeed in my lab. Yeah. Um, otherwise, it probably won't work. Um, but that's a little bit what I'll be talking about in the second day at uh, at Sparks. It's this whole aspect of uh, uh, the anticipatory system in the brain, this whole idea that some dogs really get turned on, if you want, by anticipation
1: of, mm.
2: of reward, whatever that means. It could be play. It could be a, a kibble, a, it, it can be a, a verbal praise, a, a tap on the head, whatever, and and some of the dogs eh, not so much, mm-hmm. you know. And there's breed and individual differences there, and and yes, that's really the key uh, to training, especially positive training. If you really want to work with uh, uh, mostly reinforcement, you really need a dog that will respond really well to to rewards, but actually mostly the anticipation of reward. That's really how the brain works.
1: Mm,
0: interesting. Well. Um, we have a f- just a few minutes left, and there's one other question that's really stuck out to me um, in another type of, I'm still on the on the scent detection training, but when you're talking about the hypoglycemia and really specifically with kids, in your medical detection and assistance dogs, one of the um, topics uh, or points was that you were, and intentions, was that you were uh, interested in examining the challenges of Embedding a trained dog into a family and yeah. the psychosocial aspect of the relationship between, and I think child, I think you could do between adult and assistance dog. And then when you say child and assistance dog, it kind of uh, uh, adds a whole nother host of challenges um, because these dogs are not in, you know, a controlled environment where they're just fully, it's fully about enjoying the work and, And then kids can't be um, trusted to, you know, care for an animal and and be able to be sensitive to the needs of the animal if the animal is there to um, alert to low blood sugar. Um, How far have you gotten in that in that part of the work? um, There's the the sort of. um, uh, task training of teaching the yeah. dog to detect the scent. And then with assistance dogs, there's so much more. I mean, if you're getting yeah. into you know public access and all sorts of stuff. So how far have you gotten with that part of it?
2: Not very far yet, because yeah. we're still struggling with um, the, the basics of uh, blood sugar discrimination. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, the interesting thing there is that we don't really know what it is that they're detecting, and that's really what we're trying to do. And I've been talking to a large number of trainers, many trainers that have actually worked with these dogs, and we we all seem to converge now towards this idea that it's not blood sugar levels, really, or things correlated to it that they detect as much as a stress response in the individual. Mm. Because um, uh, uh, some people seem to think that it's, yeah, it's a stress response. Essentially, they... they they will detect uh, an upcoming seizure as easily as a IPO or hyperglycemic event. Uh-huh. So it's not, uh, you know, that medical condition specifically that they Got it. Uh, get alerted to.
0: It's a body's s- response otherwise.
2: Yeah, yeah, and that complicates things quite a bit for us because now we're thinking, well, maybe we're looking <laughs> too deeply into what, you know, what endocrinological correlate, hormonal correlate they're picking up on. Yeah. So we're working with an endocrinologist, uh, Dr. Bette Cummings, and a health, uh, pediatric health psychologist, Elizabeth uh, um, McLaughlin, uh, here in Halifax. And, uh, you know, eventually we want to get to the implementation of the dogs and the families because the whole idea of this was to uh, get into the nocturnal hypoglycemia detection. Yeah. This idea that a uh, young kid can die or get into a coma if an hypoglycemic event is not detected at night. Yeah. Um some kids are too small to have the pump or uh, uh, consumer's blood glucose monitor on them uh, or there's you know uh, social or medical reasons why they can't uh, also that technology may not be as uh, uh, accurate um, and reliable as people think uh, this is actually based on a number of scientific papers yeah uh, so I think the dog into the equation we thought would be a great idea. the problem is we're not we're not there yet we've been two years into. Uh, looking into just training the dogs to detect uh, blood sugar levels uh, in the lab, in lab conditions, with samples from spit, breath, uh, sweat. And it's just recently that we are starting to get an indication that they can do it, but mm-hmm. it's not really um, it's not easy, and it's a very time-consuming uh, uh, training procedure. Um, and we're not even sure that that's the primary stimulus. Again, we think it may be just a general stress response that they detect.
0: And would that mean that the dog would have to basically stay up overnight also
2: Well, there's evidence actually that they they uh, they seem to be able to alert um uh, and it's not just dogs by the way cats also have done this hmm. um, even when they're not in the same room as the child hmm. um, so they and so they can be in principle asleep and still uh, respond to it
0: it's amazing
2: um yeah, amazing. And, and honestly, as a scientist, I'm actually very skeptical about all of this. Yeah. Uh, I, I, want, I want to see it. Um, yeah. But we're not there yet. Now, right now, we're just trying to answer the basic question. What is it that they're really detecting? Because I think that can influence training as well, including speed up training procedures later on.
0: Yeah. Um,
2: because tons of people are asking about those dogs and what, what yeah. is our training protocol and keep saying, well, we actually don't know yet. We don't even know what stimulus to work with.
0: Thanks for listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. We'll be back next Wednesday live at 2 p.m. here on Alternative Talk, AM 1150. You've been listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. Wednesday afternoons at 2 on Alternative Talk, 1150 AM. Never miss another episode. Listen to our podcast online at dogradioshow.com or download them for free on iTunes or SoundCloud.